Have you ever had to hear something that you didn't want to hear? Have you ever had to be told something that you were really hoping to avoid learning and you didn't want to know about it? After you were told it, you regretted having heard it? Have you ever had to tell somebody something that you didn't want to have to tell them? Maybe be the bearer of bad news. I know some people, um, I, was, I know of a preacher who uh, he received word on his way to a couple of his church's house, uh, the, the church where he was working, uh, that their uh, child had been killed in a car accident. And he was the first one to know, he knew even before them, and had to deliver that message to the parents. That's a really, uh, that's an awful thing to have to do. I don't know. There are sometimes there are truths. They may be true, and they may be essential to say. You know, it's like you can't just ignore that. But it's really, really hard to make yourself say it. Um, we're going to be looking at a call story this morning of uh, someone named Amos. So if you have your Bibles, turn to the minor prophet Amos. And Amos is going to be dealing with those two things. Uh, number one, he's going to have to give a message that he doesn't want to give. He's going to have to speak words that are not easy to speak. He's going to have to say things that are not easy to say. And there's going to be people there who don't want to hear it. So it's like he's giving a bad message to people who don't want to hear the message. And why is he doing that? Well, it's not because he signed up for it. It's not because it was his job. He actually had no intention of his life being about that. He was a herdsman. He spent his day with, uh, with sheep herders. He spent his day as a, you know, a working with sycamore figs. And like he worked outside with his hands. But he was called to leave his home to go up into northern Israel. He, he's from Judah. And he had to go up into northern Israel. And he had to preach to people who didn't want to hear him a message he didn't want to preach. And it's a terrible message. As you read through the book of Amos, it is one of the harshest books you will read in the Bible. Some of the language that's used, some of the warnings, some of the uh, predictions about what's going to happen to Israel, they're, they're terrible sounding. There's a lot of violence in the book. There's a lot of bloodshed in the book. Terrible things. Families ripped apart. Like terrible things happen in the book of Amos. And Amos has to go preach all of that. And that's not what he wanted to do. And that's not what he signed up for. But he did it because it was his burden to bear. And I think that's an important idea to remember. Sometimes, sometimes what you do for the Lord is a wonderful privilege, and it's enjoyable, and you grow from it, and other people grow from it, and it's great, and it's fun. But then there's sometimes what you do for the Lord is a burden. In fact, the, Amos's name means burden bearer. And I think it's a wonderful description of a really harsh ministry. It's something that Amos had to do that he didn't sign up for, and that was really difficult to do, and he was unappreciated and hated for what he had to do, except for by the Lord. The Lord, I believe, appreciated Amos and Amos's uh, faithfulness, even with a rather difficult call. So what we're going to do, the main text uh, that we're going to be looking at is in Amos chapter 7. Uh, that's where he ends up having a run-in with, a, with a, a priest of Bethel. Uh, and you know, we'll talk about what it means to be a priest at Bethel when we get to chapter 7. But before we do that, I want to get us to chapter 7. I want to look at some of this burdeny message that Amos has to bear, that he has to deliver, that leads up to chapter 7. Um, in your Old Testament, you know, the books are not ordered chronologically. Um, and the books at like the end of the Old Testament, the minor prophets, they tend to fit in somewhere in the history of the books of, say, Kings and Chronicles. Like you can kind of fit them in at certain time periods along the way. And 
the, uh, the, usually the first verse of those Old Testament books, like, like Amos, uh, will tell you who's the king at this time. So when you see the names of those kings, you can go back over to books like First and Second Kings, or you can go to the book of First and Second Chronicles, and you can see when that king was living, and you can get a good idea, oh, okay, so this pro- pre- prophet was living during the reign of this king, and, and this is what's going on in Israel while he's saying these things. Well, the book of Amos, uh, if you look at chapter 1 and verse 1, we're going to read it and then, uh, then make a couple points uh, before we move on. But Amos begins, it says, The words of Amos, who was among the sheep herders from Tekoa. So remember, this guy is not like a professional prophet. He's among the sheep herders. That's what he does. Uh, and he works outside with his hands and he works with sheep. But he is called from that. And it says, Which he envisioned in the visions concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. Okay, so uh, we're giving a, given a setting there. Apparently there was an earthquake well known enough so that you could describe, you know, time by it. It's two years before the earthquake, but he also describes it by two kings. One is King Uzziah. He's king in the south, in Judah. That's where, that's where uh, Amos lives, and that's where he's from. But he's told to go up to the north This is like, Israel has been divided at this time to where there's northern Israel and there's southern Judah, and they don't always like each other. In fact, they're kind of rivals from time to time. And uh, there are some kings who go to war with other kings, and there's, there's problems between the north and the south. It's like a civil war in Israel that lasts a really long time. And so he has to leave the south and go up to the north. And the king up north is a guy named Jeroboam. Now, there's two different Jeroboams who were kings in the north. The first one was like the first king of the north, and he did some really bad stuff. One of the things he did was he wanted to make sure that the people in northern Israel were only loyal to him. And one of the problems with that is down in southern Judah, that's where the temple was. And that's where people would go for worship. And that's where Yahweh lived. That's where, like, the God of Israel lived down there. And so what's he going to do to get people to to stop going down there and to stop depending on southern Judah? Well, he'll give them some gods up north. So he makes his own places of worship in Dan and in Bethel. Uh, Bethel, interesting enough, means house of the Lord or house of God. Uh, And so he ends up turning the house of God into the house of of other gods. Uh, And he builds uh, places of worship there and idols there. And he says, this is now your God that led you out of Egypt. This is now your God that you serve. That way he can completely cut off southern Judah from life in northern Israel. That's what the first Jeroboam did. Then you have a bunch of kings, you have a bunch of problems, you have a bunch of sin, you have a bunch of you know, people killed and all kinds of bad stuff, but you eventually have a second Jeroboam who comes around. And what's interesting about the reign of the second Jeroboam is he's not a good guy, but Israel does quite well under his reign. Their borders are extended, like they, there's, there's wealth, there's prosperity in the land. Uh, what's interesting is Jonah, the prophet, He's the one who prophesies good things for Jeroboam, even though Jeroboam is worthless. Jeroboam's like not a good king. He's a wicked guy, but Israel does well. And Jonah's the one who gives that message, which is so ironic because Jonah's the one who, for a wicked king in Israel, has no problem preaching good things. But then when it comes to like wicked Nineveh, he's not about to preach good things. He, he would rather flee and be eaten by a fish. And so you have very different um, you know, attitudes towards Israel and towards the, their neighbors. But Amos is also someone who's preaching during that time period. And the fact that Israel is wealthy during this time period, it impacts the message of Amos. Like the, the social circumstances of Israel at the time, people are doing well. 
that is going to impact his message because Amos is going to focus a lot on the social issues surrounding Israel. Are they really loving their neighbors themselves? Okay, what if your neighbor's poor? Are you loving that neighbor like you love yourself? Do you, do you treat the rich well and do you neglect? Do you destroy? Do you oppress the poor? Because that's what Amos sees when he looks at Israel. Well, two books that are good to read by, side by side are Hosea and Amos. Because those are actually written right during the same time period. And uh, Hosea focuses a lot on idolatry and foreign alliances and some of the ways that Israel has rejected their vertical relationship with God. They've broken the covenant with God by worshiping other gods. Amos also focuses how they have uh, harmed their relationship with God and how they've broken the covenant, but he looks more at how they do it by the way they treat one another. And so you get a pretty well-rounded view of the problems in Israel during the reign of Jeroboam by reading Hosea and by reading Amos. So Amos is going to focus a lot on the fact that there is oppression, there's no justice, there's no righteousness, the poor are mistreated, the wealthy get richer, and everyone thinks that everything is nice and wonderful and perfect because they have their money and there's no major problems and everything's wonderful. And so they don't need to listen to this ridiculous prophet from the South who comes up here and starts telling us our business. Uh, why don't you just go back home is eventually what he's going to be told. And, and so that's what Amos has to do. Walk into a place where even though it's wicked, the people are doing pretty well, and the poor are oppressed, but the rich are pretty glad, and he has to go in there and call them out on their injustice and call them back to the word of God. And he's like the last person they would want to hear do that. He's not even from there. He's from their rival to the south, so they don't want to listen to him. And so Amos, again, he has a burden to bear, and he's going to do it. The way that he starts off, is magnificent. Uh, the first like two chapters of the book of Amos are brilliant. He starts off condemning harshly all of Israel's neighbors. I, like if you're living in northern Israel and Amos comes up here and starts preaching this message, you're like, oh, amen, brother. You know, right on. The first thing he does in a chapter one and verse three says, "Thus says the Lord." For three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not revoke its punishment. And he starts condemning Damascus. Damascus is their neighbor up to the northeast. Uh, you know, it's way up there. And they're like, you know what? I never liked Damascus anyway. So let's go ahead and make sure that they get their condemnation. And he goes and he talks about the terrible things that they've done and that God is going to send fire upon them. Chapter one and verse four, he's going to destroy them. Like, okay, wonderful. And then in verse six, it says, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Gaza and for four. Gaza is not northeast. Gaza is going to be southwest. It's going to be below Israel. It's going to be right on the coast. And he's going to condemn them because, verse 6 says, they deported an entire population to deliver it up to Edom. So they have taken people and sold them as slaves to another group of people. He says, that's a big problem. God doesn't like that. Uh, you're going to be destroyed for that, Gaza. I'm going to send fire upon Gaza, if you look at chapter 1 and verse 7. Then in verse 9, he says, For three transgressions of Tyre and for four. Tyre and Sidon, those are enemies of Israel. And those are way up in the northwest, you know, way up above Israel, way up there. And we get to find out about their sin and that they're wicked and that uh, they also, verse 9, got involved in slave trade because they delivered up an entire population to Edom and they did not remember the covenant of brotherhood. So I will send fire upon them. And then when you get to verse 11, 
He says, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Edom and for four, I will not revoke its punishment because they pursued his brother with the sword. And so you find out that Edom, which is down in the southeast, is also part of this condemnation. Edom was mentioned in the other ones. That's who the slave populations got sold to. Then when Israel was in trouble, Edom turned against them. Edom is the descendants of Esau. They're supposed to be like brothers of Israel, but instead they have not acted like it. And so far, Israel is loving this message about all their wicked neighbors to the north and to the south being condemned. But if you notice, what Amos has done so far is he's chosen one here, 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 and here. And right in the middle of the X marks the spot is uh, Israel. And he's building right to them. Uh, He's going to keep mentioning uh, some other ones he's going to mention. So you have the Mediterranean to the west. And on the east, you have Moab and you have Ammon. And those are going to be the next two that he mentions. So that he has, by the time he finishes, he's done a whole circle around them. To where they're like, they're trapped in this message that he's proclaiming to them. There's a bullseye now, and they're right in the center of it. Then he gets to chapter 2 and verse 4, and he mentions Judah. He doesn't mention northern Israel yet, he mentions Judah. And they're thinking, well, that's a little closer to home but I still like it. You know, we don't like Judah very much. And so he talked about Judah and he says that they're condemned, chapter two and verse four, because they rejected the law of the Lord. They have not kept his statutes. Their lies have led them astray, those after which their fathers walked. So I will send fire upon Judah. And they're like, okay, good. Let's end the message right there. Uh, That's a good book. Let's just make that the whole thing. Uh, But that's not what Amos does. He then, in chapter two and verse six, focuses attention right in the dead center, focuses attention right on Israel itself. And he says, now for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke its punishment. Why? Because they sell the righteous for money and the needy for a pair of sandals. You know what that's saying? You don't care about what a man does. You don't care if a man is righteous. You don't care about having righteousness in your land. You'd rather get rid of the righteousness just so you can have money. And if there's a person who's needy, well, they're worthless to you. They're not going to give you anything. They're not going to be able to increase your status. They're not going to be able to help you financially. So you could just sell the needy person and get a nice pair of sandals on your feet for the price of them. Wouldn't it be better to have nice sandals on your feet than just another needy person walking around? And that's kind of the way that they've begun to value human life. If the person isn't worth much, then they're not worth anything. If they don't have a lot of money, I'd rather get myself something nice and uh, just get rid of these bums all around. And then you look at verse 7. Those who pant after the dust of the earth on the head of the helpless, and they turn away, uh, they turn aside the way of the humble, and the man and his father go in after the same girl in order to profane my holy name. So you see a couple of things there. You see sexual immorality that's mentioned, but notice the idea that they'll go after land and try to get more and more land, and if there's a needy or a helpless person in their way, they'll just stomp on their head as they're going to get the land. They care more about their land, about their shoes, about their money, about their pleasure than they do people who are actually are created in the image of God who are in need in their society around them. That's a problem. And that's the problem Amos is going to be addressing. Notice with each of these places he mentioned, there's like two or three verses about it. Well, once he gets to Israel, you have chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7, chapter 8, chapter 9. He doesn't let up for a while. Uh, You're going to get a lot of condemnation about northern Israel, and that's what Amos' job is going to be. Uh, When you look at uh, chapter 3 and verse 1, Amos chapter 3 and verse 1 
Notice the beginning phrase, hear this word which the Lord has spoken against you. Then notice chapter 4 and verse 1. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan. Then notice chapter 5 and verse 1. Hear this word, which I take up against you as a dirge. Uh, In each of these, chapter 3, 4, and 5, he begins with the same phrase, hear this word. That's how he's starting a sermon. So basically, after the first two chapters, where you have like the dartboard where uh, Israel gets, you know, plucked right in the middle, you then have three sermons in a row against Israel. And they all deal with the various problems that Israel is having. Uh, When you look at chapter 3, it talks about their guilt and how because of their guilt that they're all involved in, there's going to be a, a wrath coming upon them. And they think they can escape, but they actually can't. You can look at chapter 3 in verse uh, 14. It says, For on the day that I punish Israel's transgressions, I will also punish the altars of Bethel, uh, and the horns of the altar will be cut off, and they will fall to the ground. And then notice 15. And I will smite the winter house together with the summer house. So you imagine the picture, a nice wealthy Israelite with his summer house and his winter house. And he'll be like, oh, I'm in my winter house. Oh no, punishment's coming. I'll just flee to my summer house. And you find out, well, there's not going to be salvation there. I'll smite the winter house and the summer house. Okay, well then, the next thing, uh, the houses of ivory will also perish. Well, then I'll go to my house of ivory. And you find out, no, that one's taken too. Then you say, well, I'll just go to my nice big mansion. And we find out that the great houses will come to an end, declares the Lord. That's a picture of the wealth in Israel at the time, how they have all of these houses, and yet none of their wealth will save them. It's not what they can put their hope in. If, they are, if there is injustice and oppression in the land, wealth isn't going to be your friend. Uh, chapter 4, which says, hear this word, this is about God warning them over and over and over again with different, different problems that have arised, whether it's a plague or whether it's a lack of food or whether it's weather, all of these things that he gave to them, like chapter 4 and verse 6. It says, but I gave you cleanness of teeth in your cities. By the way, the dentists are like, oh, that's a good thing. But that's not actually a good thing. Uh, Clean teeth means you're not eating food in this context. So there's people who are hungry. And he says, I gave you cleanness of teeth in your cities and lack of bread in all your places. Yet you have not returned to me. It's like, that should have been a warning. That should have been a lesson. When you realize, hey, we don't seem to be blessed like we thought we were going to. Um maybe we should listen to what God has to say. Like, the, the wealth that I've had, that I've enjoyed, it's starting to, to go somewhere. Maybe I should just turn and listen to God, but that's not what he does. Uh, you look at verse 8. He again has the phrase, verse 8 ends with, yet you have not returned to me. Verse 9 ends with, yet you have not returned to me. Verse 10 ends with, yet you have not returned to me. Verse 11 ends with, yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. So verse 12 says, therefore, thus I will do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you, prepare to meet your God, O Israel. It's not going to be a fun meeting. Uh, there's, there's a message of condemnation and warning and destruction that's coming their way, and Amos has to deliver it. You get to chapter 5, this next sermon that he gives gets very explicit about some of the problems, the social injustice taking place in Israel. When you look at chapter 5, he continues to call them to seek me that you may live. But he also gives the description of what they're doing that is in opposition to the will of God. Uh, Chapter 5 and verse 4 says, Thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, Seek me that you may live. Look at verse 6. Seek the Lord that you may live. But notice verse 7. This is their problem. 
For those who turn justice into wormwood and cast righteousness down to the earth, they poison justice and they throw righteousness down because they don't need it anymore. When you look at verse uh, 10, it says, They hate him who reproves in the gate, and they abhor him who speaks with integrity. All right, so the gate is often the location in Israel where uh, justice is administered. Uh, so you would like, like in the book of, uh, of Ruth, uh, when Boaz needs to meet with the city elders to discuss marrying Ruth, he has to go do that at the gate. That's like where justice is going to be meted out. And you see that happen from time to time. If you're going to go meet with the elders of the city, you're going to, going to bring up a case, you go to the city gates. And then that's where the, the wise people and the heads of households are gathered, and they're going to be able to help you make the right decision here. But what he's saying is, if ever there's a person of integrity at the gate who reproves wickedness, they hate that, and they despise the one who speaks with integrity. He says in verse 11, therefore, because you impose heavy rent on the poor and exact a tribute of grain from them, though you have uh, built houses of uh, well-hewn stone, yet you will not live in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, yet you will not drink in them. He's saying, you, you, like, you own a nice house with everything you need, and then there's a poor person who needs a place to stay, and you increase rent on them so that they can't afford to live there anymore. Then they end up having to leave, and they're out on their own just so that you can get more money. Those are the types of things he's saying that's a problem taking place in Israel. He says in verse 12, For I know your transgressions are many and your sins are great, and you distress, uh, you who distress the righteous and accept bribes, and you turn aside the poor in the gate. So like if the poor person can't pay a bribe when they get to the gate, they just get turned aside. And if you have money, you get justice or you get, you know, I don't even know if you call it justice. You get what you want. If you have money, if you don't have money, you get turned aside and you get ignored. Uh, verse 14. Seek good and not evil that you may live. And thus may the Lord God of hosts be with you, just as I have said. Verse 15 is a good summary of what they need to do. Hate evil, love good, and establish justice in the gates. And perhaps the Lord God of hosts may be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. It's like, maybe it's not too late for you. If you will make some changes, this doesn't all have to be a negative message. There can be the possibility of salvation. There can be a remnant of faithful people who are saved. As a matter of fact, as you read, as you come over the book of Amos, almost everything is judgment, but there are a couple glimpses here and there of, of hope. One of them is to change your ways and perhaps God will be gracious. Another one is to be part of that remnant who God is paying attention to, who are doing justice. And another one is to remember that even when things get their worst, God has not forever given up on Israel. There's a hope of, of, uh, of return. There's a hope of a better day. That's how Amos chapter 9 ends, with this hope of a better day. And so there are some glimpses of hope, but by and large, you read through and everything's like I've been saying. It's all condemnation and destruction and warning and peril. In fact, the next two uh, major sections of Amos in chapter 5 and verse 18 in chapter 6 and verse 1, they begin with the same Hebrew word, which is just a loud shout of lament. Uh, it's translated as woe or alas. It's like, whoa, something horrible is happening. Uh, in chapter 5 and verse 18, the woe is about the fact that Israel's worship itself has become detestable to God. It's like they say they're going to worship God, and we're going to praise him, and we're going to have a solemn assembly, and we're going to offer sacrifice and burnt offerings and all this stuff. And God says, I hate all of that. Stop it. I don't want it. Uh, when you look at chapter 5 and verse 21, 
I hate, I reject your festivals, nor do I delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer up to me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them. I will not even look at the peace offerings of your fatlings. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not even listen to the sound of your harps. Why is God saying that? Well, because if you live your life day by day, just trying to gorge yourself and all of your desires, oppressing poor people, oppressing people who don't matter to you because they don't have enough, and then you waltz into the assembly and you start singing praises to God like there's no problem, God says, no, that's, I, I hate your worship because your life isn't right. Uh, your worship only becomes meaningful if you're living a life of justice and righteousness. If you're ignoring justice and righteousness, if you hate your neighbor, then don't come acting like your relationship with me is good. What God says, instead of your worship right now, you know what he wants to see in Israel? Verse 24, a really famous verse. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. I'd rather see justice and righteousness in the land then you just ignore justice and righteousness, but worship really good. Worship is no substitute for obedience. Worship is no substitute for justice or righteousness. Don't think that you can sing pretty enough to cover up the sins that you're living day in and day out. That's what Amos is telling Israel. In fact, when you get to chapter 6 and verse 1, this is that second woe, that second exclamation of, of lament. He says, woe to those who are at ease in Zion to those who feel secure on the mountain of Samaria. He goes on to list some of the things that they do. Uh, verse 4, Woe to those who recline on beds of ivory and sprawl on their couches and eat lambs of the flock and calves uh, in the midst of the stall, who improvise to the sound of the harp like David and compose songs for themselves, who drink wine from sacrificial bowls, who anoint themselves with the finest oil, and yet they have not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. Therefore, they will now go into exile at the head of the exiles. Here's what he's saying. There are so many people. You're lying on your comfortable couches. You're drinking your wine from the nicest bowls. You're comfortable. You're listening to the sound of the music. And everything about your life is nice and comfortable and at ease, all the while ruin and destruction is coming. Prepare. Don't just focus on how comfortable. Don't try to make yourself as comfortable as possible right now. Seek justice and righteousness. That's what matters. Well, at the end of chapter 6, Amos then moves on to a series of visions that he has. And one of them, in chapter 7 and verse 7, is of God standing in Israel with a plumb line. God is standing there and he's holding up this, this string with, a, with a, a rock or something at the bottom of it uh, that you can measure whether or not something is straight vertically. You can hold it up and you can see and you can measure uh, whether or not anything is out of sorts and going the wrong direction. And the vision is this, uh, chapter 7 and verse 8. The Lord said to me, what do you see, Amos? And I said, a plumb line. And the Lord said, Behold, I am about to put a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will spare them no longer. The high places of Isaac will be desolated, the sanctuaries of Israel laid waste. Then I will rise up against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. So that's the message that God gives to Amos. That's the message that Amos preaches. Not a happy message, right? The Lord is, is measuring you right now. He's looking at you and he sees that you're crooked. He sees that you're out of sorts, and he's not going to put up with it anymore. And the house of Jeroboam will be destroyed, chapter 7 and verse 9. Well, that word right there, Jeroboam, makes everyone's ears 
uh, you know, uh, open up, they realize, oh, wait a minute, he's just gone political. Uh, and we have a king who's not going to put up with that. So Amaziah is the next character we're introduced to in chapter 7 and verse 10. Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, priest of Bethel, you're not supposed to have priests in Bethel, by the way. Uh, priests are for Jerusalem and for the temple there. They have made their own gods, and now they have their own priests who serve their, those gods. And one of those priests at Bethel comes up to—first he tells Jeroboam, hey, you have an insurrectionist here. He's come up from the south, and he's plotting against you and against your household and against all of northern Israel. He says, your household's going to die, and Israel's going to be destroyed. And, and, and he says they're going to be exiled. And so he tells on uh, Amos to the king. And then, verse 12, he goes to Amos, and this is what he says. Go, you seer, flee away to the land of Judah, and there eat your bread, and there do your prophesying. What he's basically saying is, go home. Look, there's people in Judah who want to hear what you have to say. Let them feed you, eat your bread there, uh, and go do your prophesying there. Say whatever you want about Israel there. We don't want to hear it here go home, get out of here. Verse 13 says, but no longer prophesy at Bethel, for it is a sanctuary of the king and a royal residence. Now, Amos's response is uh, why we're looking at this as a call story, because he has said, we just read through a bunch of things, nothing that he just said was easy to say, especially when you have traveled to a land full of your enemies, where none of them want to hear what you have to say. Their priests are coming out telling you to go home. And this is not like, if Amos had grown up and his father was a prophet and he beheld the prophetic tradition and he grew up studying and preparing for it and he went to prophet school and he did all of the stuff to get himself ready for this mission and this task, that's one thing. But he says in verse 14, Amos replied to Amaziah, I am not a prophet nor am I the son of a prophet. Uh, you could translate that as I was not a prophet. But I think his point here is you're telling me to go home and to be a prophet for Judah and get my food there. But that's not my job. Not, I'm not doing this for food. I'm not doing this for payment. Uh, I never planned on being a prophet. I am, verse 14, a herdsman and a grower of sycamore figs. Like, that's what I do. That's what my life is about. Uh, this was never my plan. But, verse 15, the Lord took me from following the flock, and the Lord said to me, go prophesy to my people Israel. Now hear the word of the Lord. You are saying, you shall not prophesy against Israel, and you shall not speak evil of the house of Isaac. Therefore, thus says the Lord, your wife will become a harlot in the city. Your sons and your daughters will fall by the sword. The land will be parceled up by a measuring line, and you yourself will die on unclean soil. Moreover, Israel will certainly go from its land into exile. Uh, he says, you're telling me to go home, but there's a really, really harsh message you need to hear. And it's true. And that's why you need to hear it. It's not spoken out of vengeance or hatred. It's not spoken out of, you know, I'm loyal to the South, and so I'm going to say bad things about the North. I don't care much about Jeroboam. It's a true message that you need to do something about. Because if you don't, this is what's going to happen. If you don't hate evil, love good, and establish justice at the gate, this is the direction things are headed, and you need to make that change. You need to, to act in such a way that will produce some difference in your attitude so that you can bring about justice and righteousness in the land. We want to see that flowing like a river and like an ever-flowing stream. It, the thing about a hard message is you can so often hear it and just assume the person's hateful. 
I don't think Amos wants to be preaching this message. His name is burden bearer. He says, I'm not a prophet. This isn't what I came to do. But Amos has to because God wants Israel to know that you're making enemies right now and they're going to come down on you hard. Assyria, by the way, is that enemy who's going to come down on northern Israel and do what was just prophesied right here. Assyria is ruthless and vicious and violent and cruel. And it would be more cruel to not let Israel know what was happening. And so Amos has to go carry this burden, but they don't want him to do it. And sometimes, and by the way, you can, you can continue to, to look at the history of Israel and you realize Assyria does come crashing down hard on them. Um, sometimes you can be given a burden from the Lord. It's not something you chose for yourself. It's not something you wanted to do. You'd rather be out with your herds. You'd rather be out working with the sycamore figs. You'd rather be out with the sheep and the cattle. But instead, you find yourself doing a thankless job in a place where people aren't being, doesn't seem like they're being impacted all that much by it, and people want you to quit. In those instances, the most important thing to do is to remember that your service is to the ultimate one true king. Your service is to God, and it's not to Amaziah the priest, and it's not to Jeroboam the king. As important as they think they are, they're not the one that Amos is there trying to please. They need to hear his message, and God knows they need to hear his message, so he has to go and proclaim it. Sometimes God's plans for us are not the plans we make for ourselves. That happens with Moses, that happens with uh, Samuel. Uh, that happens with Abraham. Like, you, you see that over and over again in these stories. That's a pretty common occurrence. God calls someone from their life and from what they're doing to go do his will. And some prove faithful and some don't. Uh, what I would uh, suggest as we bring our lesson to a close is that when you see a need, when you hear a call, when you realize that you can serve, Sometimes you might get really excited about it and want to do it. Sometimes it might look like a burden being added to your life. Try to take on a burden every once in a while. Uh, it's hard to do. Uh, maybe we're too busy. Maybe we have so many things going on. But if you're never burdened by the work of the Lord, then it's potential we could end up doing very little, if nothing at all, for the, for the Lord. And maybe those burdens can be reminders to prioritize what God is calling us to do above some of the other things in our lives. Sometimes they are burdens because we have filled our lives with so much other stuff and so much other things that take our time that we just don't think we can add any more burdens. But what if it's not adding a burden? What if it's taking on a responsibility and then you loosen up some of the other things so that you can dedicate yourself fully to what God is calling you to do? Uh, that's not always easy. Amos's job wasn't easy, uh, and I don't think it's supposed to be easy sometimes, uh, but sometimes it is what God is calling us to do. Let's see if we can prove faithful and obedient. If there's anyone here who wants to, uh, to take on a hard call, open your eyes and open your ears and look around, because they're all around you. Uh, if there's anyone here who wants to become a Christian here this morning, sometimes that's a hard call too, um, but see if you can prove faithful to it. If you have the need, please let the elders know in the back in the library, or you can come sit on the front row. But please let it be known while we stand and as we sing.